exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. For the last 2,000 years, the church has gathered together on the first day of the week. Now, as Americans, I'm sure that it feels as if Monday is the first day of the week because our weekend ends with Sunday, and then Monday we restart our work. But in the Bible, God created in six days, and on the seventh day he rested from all of his work. And that day of Sabbath rest was Saturday. So for thousands and thousands of years, the Israelites would rest from their work on the last day of the week, the Sabbath was a sacred day. It was one of the Ten Commandments. And to observe the Sabbath was a holy and sacred obligation. There was actually a time when the Israelites disregarded the Sabbath completely. They did not take it seriously. And so God sent a foreign king into Israel to take them out of the promised land and send them into exile for 70 years. And God told them it was primarily because you have disregarded my Sabbaths. So what happened was when the Israel, Israelites returned to the promised land, they never missed another Sabbath. They never even thought about working on that seventh day. And that's why when we see the Pharisees encountering Jesus, they are always upset at Jesus for doing anything remotely close to working on the Sabbath. But when we get to the New Testament church, we find that in Acts 2, the church had made it a practice to gather not on the last day of the week, but on the first day of the week. Why was that? Why was it that after the death of some Nazarene carpenter, all of these devout Hebrews suddenly decided to break a 1,500-year tradition? Why did the church worship on the first day of the week instead of the last day of the week? And the answer is in John chapter 20. If you haven't already, turn with me to John chapter 20. And as you're turning... Let me tell you that last Sunday we saw Jesus of Nazareth die. We saw him carry his own cross. We saw him nailed to that piece of wood. We heard him cry out, it is finished, or to tell us die. And then we saw him buried in a rich man's tomb. But that's not the end of the story. If that were the end of the story, I would not be standing here today. If that were the end of the story then we would have no confidence that Christianity is actually true. If that were the end of the story, then you and I would still be dead in our sins with no hope of God's forgiveness. But in John 20, we get God's answer to Jesus' sacrifice, the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection is the reason we can be sure that Jesus was who he said he was. The resurrection is the reason we can know that God has accepted Christ's sacrifice. <coughs> and the resurrection is the reason we can be sure that one day we too will be resurrected. It's the historical resurrection of Jesus that changed our day of worship from the last day of the week to the first day of the week. It's this massive event, the pinnacle of all of scripture. And my prayer this morning is that you would have absolute confidence that Jesus was raised from the dead and that you would put your faith in his resurrection. Because in John 20, we're going to find two ways the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection changes everything first because the resurrection proves our faith. We're going to find that in verses 1 through 10. Secondly, the resurrection gives us hope for the future. We'll find that in verses 
11 through 18. The resurrection proves our faith and gives us hope for the future. So let's pray and we'll dive into the end of the story. (coughs) God of life, your spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Your spirit foretold of Christ's resurrection. And your spirit opens the eyes of sinners to the truth of the empty tomb. And so this morning, we pray that your spirit would empower us to understand this glorious Easter story. And by his power, may the sermon that is preached be far better than the one that is heard. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Look with me to verses 1 to 2. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Once again, all four gospels make the point that Jesus was raised on the first day of the week. All four Gospels make a point to tell us that Christ rose on that day. And the reason they do that is because when the church would gather to worship, they didn't gather on Saturday, the last day of the week, which is what the Israelites had done for thousands of years. They met together on Sunday. Because in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, the focus of worship was on God as creator. But now in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, the focus is on recreation or God as Savior. Jesus was crucified and buried on a Friday. Saturday was that Sabbath, that day of rest. So the second the Sabbath ends on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene heads to the tomb. We know from the other gospels that there was actually a group of women that went to the tomb. And John knows that we know that. But for whatever good and wise reason, John chooses to focus on Mary's experience at the tomb. You, um, you probably heard that Mary was formerly a prostitute. And even though that's common knowledge within the church, it's actually not in the Bible. If you find Mary's story, she was actually possessed by seven demons and Jesus cast them out. And obviously she was incredibly thankful. We saw in John 19 that she was one of the last ones at the cross. And here she's one of the first ones to come to the tomb ready to honor her rabbi one final time by adding perfumes to his body. But what she finds shocks her. The stone has been rolled away. Now, these stones were absolutely massive. It would take several people to roll them into place. They were meant to prevent grave robbers and animals from desecrating the graves of the deceased. But here, this massive stone has been moved. And so she runs to Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, we know is John, the author of this book. And she reports to them what's happening. Then uh, John tells us in verses three to four, look with me. (coughs) So Peter went out with the other disciples and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, when you read that verse, You may have thought it was weird that John's bragging that he's faster than Peter. Like, does that seem weird to anyone else? Like, they have this foot race, and not only does John win, but he feels the need to mention it in his own gospel. Why does he do that? Well, first off, you need to know that running in that culture 
was not actually seen as glorious or some kind of competition. Running was seen as undignified. So like in the story of the prodigal son, when the prodigal son returns home, the father runs to embrace the son, embarrassing himself. And here Peter and Mary and John are all running back and forth because they're worried about what has happened to the body of their Lord. But remember what happened the last time that we saw Peter. Three days ago, Peter had denied Jesus three times and then abandoned Jesus to face the cross without him. And I can only imagine that as Peter was running to the tomb, there must have been a sense of hesitation. That as he's running to that grave, there's a churning in his stomach as he has to go to the grave of the rabbi he denied. I think what we see here is a mixture of fear and shame. And then look to verses five to seven. And stooping in to look, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. <coughs> Once again, often when we've heard this passage preach, we focus on John outrunning Peter. But notice what happened when John got to the tomb. In verse 5, he stops in his tracks and he does not go in. Now that John sees his fears realized, now that John sees the open tomb, he hesitates and he doesn't go in. Of course, Peter, once he gets to the tomb, he can't help but go in. Now, Peter may have made a lot of mistakes, but he always made them boldly. And here he's more bold than John and he goes in. And notice what he finds. He finds the face cloths. And they're not just thrown on the ground like you would expect, but they're neatly folded by the place where the body should be. Isn't that strange? These clothes would have been essentially glued to Jesus' body as a way to preserve his remains. But here they're neatly folded where his body should have been. And this should remind you of another story that we've already studied in the Gospel of John, the story of the raising of Lazarus. What happened to Lazarus' burial clothes when he rose from the grave? He came out of the tomb still wearing them, still stuck in them. He needed help getting them removed. But Jesus didn't have that problem because his resurrection was different than Lazarus' resurrection. Lazarus would die again. Poor guy, the only guy in history who had to die twice. But when Jesus was raised... He was raised in a glorified body that would never die again. And we'll read even next week that Jesus in his resurrected body has the ability to just show up in rooms that were locked. Sometimes he just appears, sometimes he disappears. Yet his body was still physical. He still ate and drank food. He still could be touched by other people. But most scholars seem to think that when Jesus was resurrected in that tomb, that he passed through his burial clothes. And now finally, John works up the courage to go in. Look with me to verses 8 through 10. Then the other disciples who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. <coughs> now the way this verse is phrased can be a little bit confusing. Did John believe like it says he did in verse 8? Or did he not yet understand the scripture like it says in verse 9? 
And let me give you a hint. If you're ever struggling with a verse that is phrased a little awkwardly, one of the most helpful things you can do is get other Bible translations and compare it. And nine out of 10 times, that'll solve the problem. So for instance, in the New Living Translation, verses eight and nine, say that John saw and believed for until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. And that makes it much more clear. Up until this point, the disciples had heard Jesus say again and again that he would die and rise. Up until this point, they had, heard, they had read scriptures like Psalm 16 that speak of the Messiah's resurrection. But until now, John had not understood and had not believed. But here in the tomb, John sees the missing body and the grave clothes folded neatly and it just clicks. That suddenly the light goes on in John's mind and he believes what the scriptures had long foretold. R.W. Dale was a preacher in England during the late 1800s. And one day as he was writing his sermon for the following Easter Sunday, a light went on for him as it did for John here in verse 8. He had been a Christian minister for many years, but it was on that day as he was studying the resurrection that he truly believed. Listen to the story of his conversion in his own words. Christ is alive, I said to myself, alive. And then I paused, alive. Can that really be true? Living as really as I myself am? I got up and walked about repeating, Christ is living. It was to me a new discovery. I thought that all along I had believed it, but not until that moment did I feel sure about it. And then I said, my people shall know it. I shall preach about it again and again until they believe it as I do now. And that's the story of every Christian. Most of us had probably heard the gospel preached over and over and over again. We had read the Bible. We had been to countless church services. We were blind to the truth, just like John was up until this point. But then one day our eyes were open and we believe that Jesus truly did rise from the grave. Not just a faith inherited from our parents or forefathers, but a faith of our own. And here John's eyes were open. Does he know everything that's coming? Does he fully understand? No. But it was there at the empty grave that he believed. And it was precisely because the evidence of the resurrection proves that Jesus was who he says he was. It proves that God accepted his sacrifice. It proves that the scriptures themselves are true. And that's the first way the resurrection changes everything, is that the resurrection proves our faith. But it also gives us hope for the future. Look with me to verses 11 to 12. <coughs> but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she looked, uh, stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Let's stop right there. Even though Peter and John leave the tomb, Mary is too distraught to leave just yet. She's not convinced like John is. She's not satisfied with the empty tomb and the grave clothes. She still thinks that grave robbers have come and stolen Jesus' body. So as she's deep in grief and she's weeping, she notices two men, or at least they look like men. And in verse 13, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. 
These two men who had just suddenly appeared without Mary noticing asked Mary a question and she doesn't notice that they're dressed in white or think about who they are or how they got there. She's so stricken with grief that she answers the question without thinking about anything that's going on around her. And then in verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Can you imagine what's going through Mary's head right now? Can you imagine seeing someone you loved, someone you saw die, and then they just walk up to you as you're at their empty grave? At first, of course, she would not recognize him. I wouldn't expect to see the person I had seen die standing there. And of course, this isn't even uncommon when it comes to Jesus appearing to those who were his disciples after he had risen. For instance, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus was walking with two disciples and he spoke with them and they did not recognize him at first. And it's interesting, she thinks he's the gardener. And I don't think it's an accident that she thinks that. In Genesis, God placed Adam in the garden as a gardener. He was told to tend the Garden of Eden and to watch over it. Now here comes the second Adam, come to succeed where Adam had failed, come to bring life where Adam had brought death, come to restore the earth and reverse the curse. And Mary, stricken with grief, pleads with this gardener before her, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him. And then in verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus is the good shepherd. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And here is Jesus comforts this weeping sheep. Jesus merely speaks her name and suddenly her eyes are open. She recognizes her shepherd and she cries out, Rabboni. And Mary's sorrow is turned to joy at the voice of her Savior. Her hopelessness turns to happiness because he who was dead is now alive. And apparently it's in this moment that she flings her arms around Jesus and she embraces him. I mean, wouldn't you? And so in verse 17, Jesus says to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Jesus was saying to Mary, now is not the time for me to stay. I have to go, and one day you will be with me, but there's still work left to be done. The disciples were so often stuck in this mindset that Jesus had come to set up a physical kingdom on earth, So much so that even right before Jesus ascends, one of the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? They thought Jesus had risen from the grave so that he could take over the kingdoms of this world right then and there. But Jesus rose so that he could ascend all the way to to the heavenly realms and sit down on the throne in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. He's too big picture for them. 
His kingdom is not of this world. And there's too many people today who are spending all of their time and their efforts and their resources in building a physical kingdom here and now. And that kingdom will not last. And they don't realize that Christ is already reigning over his own spiritual kingdom, the kingdom which is not of this world. And that kingdom is coming to earth. And notice in verse 17, all this language that Christ uses, all this language about family, he calls his disciples brothers. Remember who those disciples were, the same disciples who abandoned Jesus, denied Jesus. Yet what does he call them? Brothers. He says he's ascending to his father and their father, his God and their God. That through his death and resurrection, Jesus has brought these orphans into the family of God. You see, man is not born a child of God. Ephesians 2 actually says that we were born children of wrath. We were born spiritually dead. We had no life in us. We were blind to the things of God, which is why mankind sins so naturally. Why do we lie so naturally? Because we're dead in sin. Why are we naturally jealous of other people? Because we're dead in sin. Why do we hate? Why do we break our promises? Why do we rebel against God and break his laws and commandments? Because we were born children of wrath. We weren't born children of God. We were dead in sin. But because Jesus has lived the perfect life that you and I never could, and because he died the death that you and I deserved, and because Jesus rose from the grave defeating death, you can be forgiven of your sins, saved from the wrath of God, and now adopted into his family. And today, if you hear the voice of Jesus calling you by name, come out of the grave and believe. If you put your faith alone in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, you will be saved. No longer are you dead in your sins, but alive in Christ. No longer are you an orphan in this world, but a son or daughter of the king of the universe. No longer is the devil your father, but the father is your father. And now if you've been adopted to the family of God, then the church is your family. If you look around the people in this room and all the believers in this room, they are your brothers and your sisters in Christ. Some of you may have noticed that I often refer to you as brother or sister. And that's not just because I'm from the South. It's because I believe that we are family in Christ. Uh, there's this old story of two brothers, James and Alexander Campbell, who immigrated to America in the 1850s. James Campbell settled in the South and South Carolina, and Alexander Campbell settled in the North in New York. When the Civil War had started, both brothers enlisted. James joined the Union Army, and Alexander joined the Confederacy. At the Battle of Successionville, James and Alexander's units actually fought one another and fired upon one another and seek to kill one another. Though neither brother died, both men ended up surviving the war and were eventually reunited and reconciled where they lived the rest of their life as good friends and as brothers. Before 1865, when, eight, when Robert E. Lee surrendered, James and Alexander were trying to kill each other. But after they heard the good news that the war was over, they were brothers. And the resurrection of Jesus is that kind of good news. It's the kind of news that can transform the vilest enemies into brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And so here Jesus charges Mary to go to announce to the brothers that he's ascending. And as Mary's sorrow is turned to joy, Jesus sends her out as the first evangelist. Still a wonder, he doesn't send John, doesn't send Peter, doesn't send any of the other apostles as the first witnesses of the resurrection. But here he sends the woman, Mary Magdalene, to announce that he has risen that he, and that he's going to ascend to heaven. I know sometimes women within the church can feel lost. Where is my place within the church? Uh, the Bible says pretty clearly that only men are to be pastors. We believe that here. I know it's controversial and countercultural. But that doesn't mean that women can do nothing. Don't forget that at the cross, of Jesus' disciples that were left, only one of them was a man and four of them were women. That oftentimes women have a glorious and faithful place within the people of God and the church. And we should especially note from this passage that the first witnesses of Christ, the reason we understand and are hearing this story today is because Christ sent a woman out to bring the good news to the apostles. Don't undervalue your role in this church, sisters in Christ. And so as Mary is weeping, her sorrow is turned to joy. And, and even we can relate to this. As we look around in our world and we see so much brokenness and pain and death, it's a comfort to know that Jesus has ascended to heaven, that he is on the throne and that he is coming back. His plan is still in place. This is not as good as it gets on earth. He has promised to return the same way that he went. And when he returns, he will make all things new. And that's why the resurrection gives us hope for the future. My prayer this morning was that you would have absolute confidence that Jesus was raised from the dead and that you would put your faith in his resurrection. Because in John 20, we found two ways the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection proves our faith and gives us hope for the future. So let me ask, have you run to that empty tomb yet? Have you examined the evidence? Have you considered the eyewitness testimony? Have you believed what the scripture said would happen in the many prophecies of the Old Testament? And do you see now how Jesus perfectly fulfills the Old Testament? Maybe you're like Mary this morning, filled with faith, but also mixed with doubt and confusion. Maybe you're so overwhelmed by the grief and brokenness of this world that it's hard to see what's true. But if you would just stop and listen to the voice of Jesus, then you can know that this story is true and receive the hope of everlasting life. This morning, I have three pastoral charges. I have three ways that you and I can apply this passage to our lives and have absolute confidence that Jesus was raised from the dead. First pastoral charge, trust in the undeniable evidence. Trust the undeniable evidence. The grave was empty. If the Pharisees wanted to disprove the resurrection, all they need to do is grab Jesus' body and show it to the world. But they couldn't do that, which is why the message kept spreading and spreading. His clothes were lying there, neatly folded. The stone was rolled away, and then Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Soon Jesus will appear to all the apostles, more than 500 witnesses, and most of those witnesses will eventually die for the fact that Jesus rose from the grave. Ten of the 11 apostles died for the fact that Jesus rose from the grave, in fact. The only one who didn't was John, the writer of this book, 
and he was exiled to the island of Patmos, but he still went to his grave preaching and believing that Jesus rose from the grave. Now, let me ask you, would you die for a lie? Countless people have died for things that aren't true, surely, but no one is willing to die for something they know for a fact is false. But the apostles were there. They saw the empty tomb. They all claimed to have witnessed Jesus after he rose from the dead. And if they were lying, you'd think somebody would have admitted it as they were being tortured or executed. But 10 out of 11 of them died professing that Jesus rose from the grave. And they all went to their graves preaching that Jesus rose. So trust in the empty tomb. Trust in the eyewitnesses. Trust in the scriptures that told us exactly what would happen and have absolute confidence that the story you have just heard is absolutely true. Second pastoral charge. Trust in the resurrected Lord. Trust in the resurrected Lord. Jesus came into this world to obey the Lord in every way that you and I have failed to. And on that cross, he satisfied the wrath of God for all who would believe. He cried out to tell us die. It is finished. And then God raised him from the dead to bring life to all who would believe. Repent of your sins and trust in the resurrected Lord today. And finally, trust in the promises of Jesus about the future. Trust in the promises of Jesus about the future. When Mary heard Jesus' voice, her sorrow was turned to joy. Her hopelessness turned to hope. And she wiped away her tears. And it can't help but, but think of Jesus' words in John 5 when he said, An hour is coming when all in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And for those who are raised to life, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning, crying, or pain. For the first things have passed away, and behold, he is making all things new. The resurrection of Jesus gives us hope that there's resurrection still for us to come. There's a day coming when Jesus will make all sad things come untrue. And so the final charge is to trust in his promises about the future. And on that note, let's pray. Dear resurrected Lord, we praise you for your life for your death, and for this act of coming back from the dead. You're the only one who could have done it. And we praise you for the evidence of it. We praise you for this glorious story. We thank you that you have called us by name in our hearts one by one and brought us out of darkness into the glorious light. And Lord, I ask that if anyone has not come out of the darkness into the light, that you would call them by name, that you would let your voice shine into their souls and that they would come and put their faith alone in you. We praise you today. It's in your name. Amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, 
If you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com. Thank you.